It's time for Sports Life Balance with John Moffat. The thing that really drove it home for me with wheelchair racing was that we were on the start line with the runners. So we crossed the same start line. We did the same course. We crossed the same finish line and we all hung out together at the end. And there was such a feeling of community and connectedness that I got from that first from swimming and now from this that I was like, okay, maybe this competitive sport thing isn't so bad. And then I met a coach who was coaching kids and adults that were using wheelchairs for racing. She said, you know, you want to try one of the track chairs? I think you could be really fast. And we went out to the track and I jumped in a racing chair and she timed me going around the track once and she said, you know, you're pretty close to the national record of 400 meters. And that builds a ton of confidence in us. And it's one of the beautiful things with sport. And if we're guided by coaches in the right way, we learn to channel it properly. And I had that gift. Introducing Candace Cable, nine-time U.S. winter and summer Paralympian, pioneer in Paralympic sports and global disability activist. I'm John Moffat, and thank you for joining us today on Sports Life Balance. When Candace was paralyzed in a tragic accident at just 21 years old, her life changed forever. She found herself adrift, depressed, and addicted to drugs. After months in rehab, Candace enrolled at Long Beach State, where one of the greatest swim coaches in American history taught her to swim. And it's also where she discovered her natural talent at wheelchair racing. Since her first Paralympics in 1980, Candace has won 12 medals, including eight golds in track racing, cross country, and alpine skiing. She has won an unprecedented 84 marathons around the globe, including six victories in the Boston Marathon. And in 2019, Candace was inducted into the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall of Fame. As the Tokyo Paralympics thrive this summer, Candace's journey makes us all realize just how far the Paralympic movement has come since her trailblazing career began more than 40 years ago. I'm in John Moffat's house. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Kogan said that it looked like a seance room. It does I, a little bit. I, had the, I, I forgot. I meant to put the candles on. Do you want the candles? No, I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm afraid we might channel someone. I have a lot of connections. <laughs> well, okay. I love it. I love it. Well, Candice, welcome to Sports Life Balance. Oh, thanks, John, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to get to know you through the years. It was mostly it was starting with the uh, LA24 bid. Uh, which you were very involved with. You were, I believe, the Director of Paralympic and Disability Engagement. Was that your official title? Yes, it was. And I was also Vice Chair of the Board. Oh, got it. Got it. Yes. So, so yeah. So I, I remember, I mean, you obviously did more because you were on staff and I was working more on a volunteer basis. And I was on the uh, AAC or the, I, I guess it was the Athletic 
Advisory Commission. Yeah. The, yeah, it's yeah, AAC. Yeah, AAC. It uh, definitely had the yeah. same acronym as the <laughs> USOPC's AAC. Too many acronyms. <laughs> but um, we did a lot of community outreach. I mean, that's the thing I remember. I remember actually, you know, speaking with you at the city hall to council members and things like that, um, public speaking events of all kinds with like a lot of kids and engagements. Um, I mean, it was it was pretty amazing the how how the city, just with the possibility of getting the Olympic and Paralympic Games mobilized. Oh, absolutely. We at LA24 and then LA28 had events every weekend that we could engage athletes, Olympians and Paralympians in at any opportunity. So whoever was available could be a part of it. And then we had those big events like City Hall and a few other things, uh, Olympic Day, Right, yeah, before right. it was Olympic and Paralympic right. Day. Which is a recent, a yeah. very recent thing that they really added is. Paralympic. Well, even the change of the name of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee is relatively recent. It's only been yeah. a few years. Right. And, and that's a, you know, that's a major piece of change that we hope to see in the rest of the world because there are only a few countries that have their national olympic and paralympic committee underneath the same house you know right. in that same place and that makes a huge difference in every aspect of sports growth there's been a lot of growth within the usopc and that of course is one of them and that's a very positive thing um <clears throat> that has come out of that but um one one thing that is is i mentioned that we called this LA 24 when mm -hmm. we were for, for a couple of years, I think when we were well, doing work. When it first started, it definitely was LA and 24. So remind the viewer, since you were kind of in the epicenter of it all, um, why, why it switched suddenly with like, it was kind of the 11th hour switched to 2028 from 2024, which is of course the original target. Yeah. Well, it was super creative. Uh, you know, for the viewers, I'm Paralympic athlete. And uh, when I, was growing up, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, but prior to coming back to Southern California, I had lived in Northern California for 25 years. And when I came back to this area, I was on the Athlete Advisory Council, the AAC for mm -hmm. the USOPC. And we were meeting at LA 84 Foundation's building. And I think you were probably there too, as someone who is part of the Alumni Association. And we were, you know, just meeting and we met with LA24 and they came and did a presentation for right. the Athlete Advisory Council. And that idea that the games could come to Los Angeles in 2024 was a big deal. And there were five, four other, I think there were four other countries that were bidding on it, four other cities. And as it had gone down to the wire and we, we were working towards getting the games. Once I was a part of that group, LA 2024, it was down to Paris and LA. Right. And in LA, we knew that it was European-centric, the vote. The we, IOC. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, yeah, the IOC was really European-centric and that the vote was going to heavily go towards... Paris in 2024, because 2024 was going to be 100 years since the last Olympic Games had been right, there. Right. And of course, never have the Paralympic Games been there. So we had to figure out how we were going to get a Games. And our um, leadership, Casey Wasserman, 
uh, Gene Stikes and and uh, and the mayor of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Eric Garcetti, you know, put their heads together with leadership on on the bid team, and they came up with this idea that pretty much there was only a few people that knew what the idea was, and. So Casey Wasserman went for a walk with Thomas Bach, mm-hmm. president of the International Olympic Committee on the beach. And uh, I think we were in Geneva because we had done a presentation, right. Paris and L.A. And I said, listen, you know, this is how I remember it. Uh, you know, when I got in on what it was, how it came down was that, you know what, we need a Games to come to the United States. And mm-hmm. we need to come up with something because we're not doing a bid again. If we lose this, we're not bidding again. And there's a lot of support like NBC and those kind of things right. that could be lost with this. And we have three games back to back that are in Asia. And so because we had Pyeongchang, mm-hmm. we have Tokyo right now mm-hmm. and Beijing is next. And that timing for the American broadcast is not great. As we already are seeing with Tokyo right now. Right, right. Uh, Because I know this is going to come out during Tokyo. Tokyo. (laughs) So anyways, they went for a a walk on the beach and they came up with this idea of awarding two games, which had never happened before. And to give 2024 to Paris, 2028 to Los Angeles, and also to give Los Angeles some financial support to get started ahead of time to create some recreational opportunities in the Los Angeles area for youth with with and without disabilities. Really start building that legacy of of the 2028 games early. Yeah, Yeah. build that early because, well, we know that we have some great programming here with lots of organizations, LA24. I mean, LA84 is one that is an amazing organization that really supports youth sports. But we haven't had a lot of disabled sport support. Right. We, we have some organizations, Triumph Foundation, Angel City Sports here in Los Angeles that focus on physical disabilities. Mm-hmm. And we have Special Olympics, intellectual disabilities. Uh, but we haven't really had a lot of city programs. Right. And this was about the city. And, and really developing that. And so that means that hopefully we're going to be able to see with this funding and some new policy development, some real great adaptations made in facilities and programming that will bring in disabled youth and right. adults to be able to participate in sport. Because we all know how important sport is. Absolutely. And that's what we're going to talk about. And yeah. <clears throat> one final thing I'd like to add is that is that the the... The kids, both um, able-bodied and and um, disabled, mm-hmm. right now these are the kids that are just probably learning how to do sports and just taking up sports that might be representing the United States in twenty twenty eight in seven years. So it's really exciting program that they've come up with. Yes, and that's a great point that you make because non-disabled kids and disabled kids often play together if they have the opportunity, but they don't have the opportunity that much. And to think about the future of a 2028 to be able to work towards is really exciting for a lot of not just kids, but parents too. Uh, I have a nine-year-old that is not my child, but is a kid that was born with spina bifida. Mm-hmm. And he, when we got the games and won the bid, 
he was, I want to go to the games in 2028. I want to be a wheelchair racer. There we go. And so we've been working together with Angel City Sports to create this opportunity as his own racing chair now. And his sister has a disability too. So they're both doing the racing chairs. And uh, just recently at the Pasadena 5K and triathlon, they did the kids triathlon together in their racing chairs wow. and, um, yeah, and swimming. That's great. Yeah, there there are, um, I mean, it's really kind of a magical place here in Los Angeles for, for sports and for, you know, activating kids. Um, you know, another thing that we have in common, other than doing some work for the upcoming 2028 games, is that both of us grew up in Southern California. You in a place called West Covina, right. which is 20-ish miles from downtown LA. Yes. Right. And me about 15 miles further east of that, which is a little town called Claremont. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> were you athletic at all growing up? So I was a non-disabled kid growing up in West Covina and I wasn't what you would call competitively athletic. Mm -hmm. I was more loving the outdoors. I liked to hike. Right. I was surfing we would spend our summer vacations down in Baja, mm -hmm. and uh, my parents would go down there, and they'd take the truck with the camper on it, and they'd bring the record player and the, um, the refrigerator that they could plug <laughs> in, and we had lots of friends that went with us, and you know, I was a kid that slept on the beach at night down there, and uh, we were surfing during the day and riding horses and things down in Baja, yeah. and, and uh, camping, fishing, hiking those were water skiing that was another one yeah. that my family really liked to do yeah so i was really attached to the outdoors but competitive sport i did not like at all because there was this level of confrontation that i wasn't comfortable really? with really growing up yeah and so pe you know forced yeah. pe changing yeah. into your gym shorts and your blouse because we had blouses when oh, i was really? going to school so i was born in 1954 okay so and graduated from high school in 1972 so we we had a uniform that we had to wear for physical education mm -hmm. and you had to change into that and uh and i just did not enjoy physical education at all because wow. it was always based around competitive mm -hmm. activities and yeah, and so graduating from high school, I moved down to the beach, and then I moved up to the Lake Tahoe area. Okay. And I was working as a blackjack dealer in Lake Tahoe. Really? And yeah, I had learned how to ski the winter before, and uh, one night after work, uh, my boyfriend and a friend of his had been in the club all night drinking, mm -hmm. and I was getting off work at four in the morning. We walked out to the jeep we had a, a cj5 jeep that right. had uh was convertible so the top was off it was just the end of summer it was a beautiful starry starry night um end of august and as i was approaching the car i said to my boyfriend i'll drive uh, because they'd been drinking mm -hmm. and i hadn't drank at all and there's no i'm i'm gonna drive and we argued back and forth a little bit and again my confrontation avoidance came oh. forward and the peer pressure of it, I got in and the passenger side. And when I got into the passenger side, my intuition told me something's going to happen. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't listen to it. And I am a firm believer uh, since that time that developing our intuition is critical for our survival in so many areas. Really that intuitive feeling that says, this is right. 
this is wrong mm-hmm. and really paying attention to it because we, we as human beings, we totally lose that. We have that as a youth in a really strong way, but we get caught up in societal functions and bias and, you know, expectations and all those things. Peer pressure from boyfriends. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we miss it and we don't listen to it. So I got in and we started heading up a road called Kingsbury grade that I lived at the top of, um, that he was going to take me to. And it's a very steep, windy road. And about halfway up, the Jeep flipped, mm. fell over. Uh, I'm going to date myself here. It's a little bit like the show Laugh-In. There was a comedian that rode a little tricycle. And as he was riding his tricycle, he would just fall over on his side. Right. And that's exactly what happened with the Jeep. We made a turn. The Jeep just fell straight over on the driver's side. I fell from the passenger side to the driver's side, hit my back on the edge of the door where the window makes the door, uh-huh. and that crushed the vertebrae in my lower back and cut the spinal cord, and I instantly could not feel my legs. Really? And so part of my body was in the car still, in the Jeep, uh-huh. and part of it was laying on the asphalt looking up at the sky. Oh, my God. And they both rolled out, and they wanted to pull me out of the car, and they moved me away from the car and then they wanted to pick me up and I said, no, don't touch me. And another car drove down the hill because this was way before cell phones. Another car drove down the hill and stopped and they went and made a phone call at a payphone to call for an ambulance. And so this was in 1975. And the ambulance came, picked me up, put me in the ambulance, took me to the Bart Memorial Hospital and... Um, I got there and they said, Hey, you, uh, you've had a really bad injury. It looks like a spinal injury. And after the x-rays and going into ICU, I woke up in the morning and a doctor came in and he said, you've had a spinal cord injury. It's broken your back. And I, I thought broken back, broken arm, broken leg, put a cast on it. Should be good in six weeks. He said, no, you don't understand. And I was in complete denial. I was like, no, you don't understand. I have a life. Yeah. You know, I have things I have to do. And uh, yeah, I had surgery there. I actually had my spinal cord surgery and the, the rebuilding of the vertebrae because they took bone from my hip and rebuilt the vertebrae. Dr. Watson, Dr. Fry, and Dr. Stedman. Dr. Stedman went on to be a very famous mm-hmm. orthopedic surgeon for the U.S. ski team. Yeah. And later in my athletic career as a downhill skier, oh my gosh. we met up again at an event. And I was, Dr. Stedman, Candace Keeble. Wow. <laughs> wow. He said, mm. you were my only and first spinal cord injury that I ever worked on. And uh, yeah, so funny how things wow. come full circle in our that lives. Was- but yeah, after that, I spent six months in the hospital. Oh, my heavens. They sent me, I was two months up in Tahoe and then four months down at Rancho Los Amigos in Downey, California, mm-hmm. major rehabilitation hospital, and uh, had a real difficult time adjusting. Right. 1975. I mean, how, can, how can you adjust? Yeah. At 21, you have no real coping skills yeah. with trauma like that. And I became depressed. I started to use drugs. I isolated myself and I woke up one day and said, I don't want to do this anymore with my life. Went to my mom directly and said, mom, I need help. 
She said, okay, let's get you help. I got into a program that was a live-in program, which is really funny because it's on the other side of Rancho Los Amigos Spinal Cord Injury Unit. They have a drug rehabilitation unit oh my on the opposite side. I don't know if it's still there. In 1975, they did. <laughs> but I spent uh, probably another six months there. Really? Going through group therapy, psychological therapy with a psychologist, and and really coming up with new coping skills, right. how I can redefine myself, right. uh, figuring out how I move through the world using a wheelchair, yeah. and, and then got involved in going to school again. And I went to Long Beach State. And that, as we come full circle yeah, with right. my competitive athletic career that, that I it had in the, as a, you know, an athlete for 27 years in Paralympic sport, I went to disabled student services at Long Beach State, and it was filled with people with a huge variety of disabilities, and I suddenly felt like I found my people. This is Sports Life Balance, hosted by John Moffat. Hey there, I'm really excited to tell you about our new partner, Roca. Roca was founded by two of my fellow All-American Stanford swimmers, and I've been using their equipment for years, their wetsuits and their goggles and their suits. Not just because they're my friends, but because their training and racing gear are seriously second to none. But what you might not know about Roca is that they also make the best performing eyeglasses and sunglasses on the market. And I'm wearing some right now. And they're awesome. They're extremely lightweight, totally adjustable, and they never fall off my face, even when I'm hot and sweaty. And best of all, I totally forget that I'm wearing them. Roca has dozens of great looking styles to choose from. And one of my favorite things about their classic designs is that I can use the same pair for a hard workout or a night on the town. So whether you need prescription glasses like mine or a stylish pair of sunglasses, please go check them out. Head to roca.com. That's R-O-K-A.com and enter code SLB as in Sports Life Balance. That's three letters, S-L-B, to save 20% on your first order. And now let's get back to Paralympian Candace Cable. Well, so so was this the first time you were ever ever like outside of the hospital finding a community, finding yes. peers that, for lack of a better term, a team? Yes, absolutely. It was my very first because there were six of us in the hospital uh-huh. at Rancho Los Amigos in, on the spinal cord injury ward. Once I got out of the hospital, I never saw anybody else right, right. that used a wheelchair. And I... And the world wasn't accessible. I, I mean, there were no curb cuts. If we want to just talk curb cuts here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To cross a street, if I was on the sidewalk, I'd have to find a driveway, go in the street, cross the street, stay in the street until I find another driveway right. to get on a sidewalk. Uh, everything was so intimidating. People were always staring at me because they never saw anybody using a wheelchair either. And there was, it wasn't welcoming. Right, I didn't right. feel like I belonged anymore. I felt like my life was over until I was told, you need to go to the university and get some skills and let's get you a job and get you going. And so Disabled Student Services existed and I went there. And while I was there, I met people that were involved with sport. Now, one of the other things that I had done was I had signed up for swimming. Yeah, right, right. I thought it was a swimming class. I mean, I thought it was just, let's learn how to swim. Right. Uh, What I had signed up for, actually, was the swim team, and I didn't realize that. And I arrived on the pool deck, 
first thing in the morning and the coach of the swim team was there John Urbanchek. John Urbanchek. Like, go okay. ahead and do the accolades for John because oh. this man, oh, like he it, made me feel so welcomed. Uh, a young girl using a wheelchair who yeah. didn't really know how to swim properly competitively, uh, wasn't even looking competitively at anything, and said, come, play with us. That's, that's, and that's so John. You know, I got to know John as a coach. He was... Um, he, I was on a swim team um, called Beach Swim Club, and we had the Newport Beach branch, which is where I trained day in and day out during the week. And then on the weekends, we'd come to Long Beach State and train um, in that pool. And John Urbanchek was the coach. Uh, it was my first exposure to John. Um, John is, oh my gosh, he he was, like I said, he was my coach as a teenager, um, an incredible man, as you've mentioned, and an amazingly innovative coach. Like his workouts absolutely. were absolutely like intellectually stimulating as well as like fantastic training, physical training. Um, and he's also one of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. Now, here's the kicker. John Urbanchek, I mean, if that name sounds familiar to anybody, um, everybody in the swimming world knows John. Yeah. Um, he, he's, he was the Olympic swimming coach um from 1992 to 2012 and like so for 20 years he was he was like one of the main guys if not the main guy yeah the man on the deck right man on the deck and you know i saw him a few years ago and he still is so happy and anyway so it's such a strange thing that i was actually training in that pool when you were first getting your first exposure to athletics Yes, 1978, 79. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, 79. Right. Yeah, 78, yeah. 79, 80. Yeah, that's about was, it. Was the time that I was there, and we were probably in the water together at the <laughs> same time, which is so funny. Uh, but John was so generous in so yeah. many ways, mm -hmm. and I had that first feeling of inclusion that I hadn't had since my injury. Really? You know, as I said How many before, years it had been since your injury Well, my at injury this point, was 1975, so, so, so... this is about four years-ish? Yeah, yeah, three to four years mm -hmm. where I had felt outside of everything. Like, my life was over, I wasn't worth anything, and I had no place to be. There was nothing that was really welcoming of me until I found Disabled Student Services at Long Beach State right. and the pool deck and John. with John Urbanchak, who said, hey, come swim with us. I'm going to teach you strokes and you can compete with my athletes. I'll just give you a shorter distance in the same discipline. And so he taught me every stroke and I hung out with the swim team and I went to shaving parties. And okay, you got to explain what a shaving party <laughs> is. Those of us who are swimmers know all about it. Well, it is, you know, it is joy. I'll tell you. <laughs> it is quite joyful. It's ridiculousness is what it is. <laughs> it really is. It's super fun and silly, but it's so joyful. Mm -hmm. And it's such a bonding experience with the whole team. Oh, it is. Because what we're doing is we're shaving our bodies, basically, right. to try to get faster. It was before these. It things. makes a difference. It well, that's what I was told, and it sure it, feels good it, in the no, water. No, 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 it, it does make a difference. <laughs> it felt so delicious mm -hmm. in the water. Yep, oh my it does. gosh, it felt like a seal. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, so now they have the suits, you know, those great suits and things. I don't know if they still have shaving parties, I'm, but I'm sure they, they I, I'm yeah. pretty sure they all still shave. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. honestly it was a piece of the, uh, the experience of being a part of a swim team. Yeah. And, and also I had a bigger experience of being a part of the non-disabled world again, mm-hmm. because I had not been a part of it in so many ways. I mean, I'd go to a building and there were steps to get in. Or, yeah. You know, oh, you have to enter from the back. You go up this ramp. It goes by the garbage cans through the kitchen. Into, you know, uh, oh, sorry, we use the bat, the accessible bathroom for storage. <laughs> you know? You're right. right. <laughs> so, well. so here it was, you know, with the swim team and. I was also meeting other people with disabilities through Disabled Student Services, yeah. and there were sports being invented at that time in the late 70s. One was wheelchair tennis, and I tried that, didn't like chasing that little ball around. <laughs> but wheelchair racing was the thing I gravitated towards. Again, there was a feeling of inclusion that happened when a group of us were going to go and do, I can't remember if it was a 5k or a 10k at Griffith Park, but we were going to go do this race. And is that there, your, is that your first competition? I, I think it might've been not the first one, uh, in a wheelchair, but, uh, cause we were rolling around in circles on the track. Uh, okay. But, but, but as far road. as an organized yeah, race on the road. Yeah. A road running race. So uh-huh. there was no wheelchair division at all. Uh-huh. Um, because well, I was part of the group that created those and we hadn't done that yet. And I hadn't gotten that far. And we went there. We were like, we want to do this race. The thing that really drove it home for me with wheelchair racing was that we were on the start line with the runners. So we crossed the same start line. We did the same course. Mm -hmm. We crossed the same finish line and we all hung out together at the end. And there was such a feeling of community and connectedness that I got from that first from swimming and now from this, that I was like, okay, maybe this competitive sport thing isn't so bad. And I think I can figure this out. And then I met a coach who was coaching kids and adults that Mm -hmm. were using wheelchairs for racing. Mm -hmm. And racing chairs were really just starting to be built. They were still four wheels, little uh, eight inch front wheels, two in the front, the bigger wheel in the back with the push ring. So there wasn't the three-wheeled little sleek mini dragsters that you see now yet. We hadn't invented those yet. And she came up to me, and I was at a regional competition swimming, Mm -hmm. because I was going to be a swimmer. (laughs) And uh, she said, you know, you want to try one of the track chairs? I think you could be really fast. And we went out to the track, and I jumped in a racing chair that – they had there that was one of those first original ones and she timed me going around the track once and she said you know you're pretty close to the national record of the 400 meters and I went "Ooh, okay <laughs> there you, you go. know sense of accomplishment yeah right? right that builds a ton of confidence in us and it's mm-hmm. one of the beautiful things with sport yes exactly is that this level of confidence can be built and if we're guided by coaches in the right way we learned to channel it properly. Right. And I had that gift. I yeah. was given that gift by this coach, Barbara Chambers, who is 
and has been an amazing coach for so many athletes. I, I have the, I'm blessed to speak to a lot of athletes and there's always a very similar story that there was a spark you know, there was, right. there was somebody there. There was a John Urbanchek. There was a Barbara Chambers. Barbara Chambers. And somebody, somebody who looks at you and says, you know, you can be good. Mm-hmm. And there's such incredible power to that. And it goes back to what we were talking about with the LA 28 legacy programs with the youth and the youth programs. Right, right. It's important. It's really important because we as humans need other humans right? Mm -hmm. And we connect in a variety of ways. One is participating in activity and play together. Play, when we are in cooperative play, it creates the most amount of empathy that we can muster in our minds and bodies. Because in that cooperation piece, there's lots of studies on this. In that cooperation piece, we develop this connection with the other individual, and we want the other one to do as well. So cooperative play is is really how we create human connection in life. And we see it early on with small children. And one of the, it's really fun, is one of the things that really promotes empathy in a huge way in cooperative play is a video game called Rock Band. Oh, okay. Yes, they've done tests with it. And they said it builds the highest amounts of empathy because the group is trying to play together, right? Right. right. You know, to succeed and to accomplish something in the game. And it goes back to a shaving party, you know, that it builds this incredible bond because everyone's, everyone's scared before competition. Everybody gets nervous. I mean, you prepare, you prepare quite a bit for these competitions and there's pressure and you've put pressure on yourself and, you know, that collective, like, okay, we're in this together is invaluable. And it's also... It's also a valuable lesson in life, even when you're not participating in in active or organized sports. Yeah, or competitive. Yeah, competitive sports. But we've we saw the amount of pressure during the Olympics here in 2021. We saw that pressure play out on top athletes mm-hmm. that you know that they had to step back and they had to do something, and we're. We have to, as human beings, learn to support each other in developing good coping skills, right? Yeah. Really good coping skills for dealing with stress and trauma and, and you know, situations that we don't expect to happen. I remember when uh, I was competitive. I always had three plans. You were confrontational. <laughs> Did you ever learn how to be confrontational? Absolutely. Okay. I've, I've actually learned how to do it in a positive way. Okay. Yes. It's, it's, it works for me now. It okay. works for me now. And, uh, and I'm sorry that I was so afraid of it for so long and, and you know, growing up because I, I missed some opportunities that I could have had as a, a really young person and been able to deal with those feelings that I had. Mm. I just stuffed them down, you know, for so long. And sports really helped me learn how to pull those feelings out that were really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and look at them and then figure out how to deal with them. And whether that's figuring it out on my own Mm -hmm. or going to a professional or doing it with my group, my community together. Because, you know, a lot of times after an event, we all get together after the event and we rehash the event. Of course. Right? That's all part and of we it. we break it down. No. And that level of bonding too is massive. And I think that 
oftentimes individual sport athletes don't have a lot of opportunities to get that building of a community, right? Um, so I think in this, you know, when I think about skills and life skills and stuff that mm -hmm. sports brought forward for me, it really was about learning how to develop community wherever I was so that I could mm. have that group, those people, may it be one or 20, that I can not, not just commiserate with, but also be able to figure out where we get better. Like, how do we do this better? How do we become more engaged in all the activities that build a better world for all of us. Right. Like, and I just went really big picture there, you know, no, no. from just the individual down to the, you know, up to the, the highest degree of, you know, changing policy and civil rights and laws and things like really making things equitable and working for people. I think with sports, we learn how to do that early on and cooperative play mm -hmm as the studies have shown, are, is something that really helps us begin to develop the coping skills and develop the innate skills we need, like empathy and compassion for not just other people, but for ourselves. Right. 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 Because I think when we get into pressure situations, to kind of wrap this back around, when we get into a pressure situation, we don't have a lot of empathy for ourselves. Or compassion. No, if you if people are calling you the goat, you you're not supposed to falter. Yeah, exactly. And that doesn't make any sense because we're humans, mm. and we all need help and support when we get in places where, you know, for lack of a better word, our shadow sides take over. Right? Mm. Those things that we stuff down. My confrontation piece that I was so afraid of was a shadow for mm. me. I kept stuffing it and stuffing it and it won't stay down forever. It has to come up. Right. And one of the really beautiful things that I was gifted with sports was that it came up. It came up and it showed me how to do it. I did it wrong a whole bunch of times. Like, but everybody does. Yeah. But it was okay because I was always in sport to be better at what I was doing. And so my focus was never on beating other people and things. And that's how I learned how to develop and deal with my mm. confrontation issues was that I was just dealing with myself. Uh, yeah, I'd be in the middle of a race. I was watching um, in, in, two, um, in 1984, there was an exhibition event. Yeah, that, this is, I want to get to this. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. in 1984, there was, there was an exhibition event in the Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles right. for wheelchair racing. In the and, Coliseum, I yeah, believe, Yeah, in right? the Coliseum right. in front of 80,000 people. Unbelievable. Like, we'd never been in front of that many people, in, ever. And the broadcast was millions and millions, right? So this exhibition event came about because Juan Antonio Samaranch was Who also... Was then the president, president of the of, International Olympic Committee. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, was a champion of disabled sport in Spain. And the 84 organizing committee for LA was not going to hold the Paralympic Games. They were, they said it was too expensive, too much work. So the Paralympic Games were going to go someplace else. And there were a few things going on that also contributed to this exhibition event. But I was in the women's 800 meters that okay. were wheelchair racing on the track twice right. around. And then they had a men's 1500 meters for wheelchair racing. 
And in 1984, we had that opportunity to be able to really break down some stereotypes and stigmas and bias right. and all of this stuff, like just myths about disability, because the myths are we're not capable of doing anything where we have to be taken care of. Uh, we're broken, so we must be fixed. Right. These are all old, old models. They're not social models that are about inclusion and diversity and opportunity and equity and those things. Yeah. So back then in 84, we didn't have even a civil rights law that protected people with disabilities. Right. We weren't included in any of those. So 1990 was our first civil rights law, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So 84 was a big deal. So I was watching a film of 1988 when we had the exhibition event again, again what, in Seoul, Korea. What, weren't the... Weren't the Paralympics officially paired with the Olympics in 88? Am I wrong? Yes. No, you're right. You're right. Okay. Yeah. That was the first year that, in 1988, was the first year that the Olympics and the Paralympics were held in the same cities and the same venues. Right. And the athletes were in the same village. Before that, there was attempts at it. There were attempts at it. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, my 1980 games, my very first Paralympic games the games were supposed to be in Moscow, right? The Olympic Games were supposed to be in Moscow. And the Paralympics- Well, they were held in Moscow. The, right. the Olympic Games were held right. in Moscow. They yeah. were, and and they were held there. We You're didn't right. go. That's right. The Olympic team did not go. It boycotted. But the Paralympic team wasn't really considered part of the U.S. Olympic Committee yet. Mm -hmm. And so when the conversation came for the Soviets- to hold the Paralympic Games, they said, well, we don't have any disabled people, so we're not going to hold the Paralympic Games. So our games were in Holland. Wow. So, yeah, so that's, you know, when I talk about myths and stereotypes, before the mid-20th century, people with disabilities were either institutionalized or eradicated. It was that. And Soviet Union, they were eradicated, basically, right? Oh, my right? gosh, yeah. Yeah, or institutionalized. So in 1988, when we get to Seoul, Korea, I qualify for the exhibition event in 1988. And uh, Was I, it the 800 again? Yep. Okay. The events continued until 2008, I believe. And then they stopped the exhibition events in the summer games. And there were two years, uh, Sarajevo and Calgary, where they had exhibition events in downhill skiing okay. during the Winter, Winter Olympic Games. Yeah. But those only lasted for two games, and then they, they, they didn't do those anymore. But the Summer Games exhibition events lasted for a while. So I'm watching a video the other day. Uh, as I was thinking about my confrontation development <laughs> strategies, I was watching a video the other day of the 800 meters that we had in 88. And we took off. Gun goes off. We take off. Sharon Hedrick, the goddess that she is, amazing, amazing athlete, went to the lead in 84 and went to the lead in 88 and won the gold medal in both of those events. Uh, I darted off after her. And as I'm racing after her in 800 meters, an ath another athlete tucks in behind me. And I can see myself in the video actually having a conversation with this person behind me, <laughs> telling them, I know exactly what I was saying. I'm telling them to come to the lead and take their turn. Yeah. Because drafting is a big deal of course in wheelchair it is. racing. It's like it is in It's cycling. like cycling. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Massive. And she never would. And so I, I could see my head turning side to side several times 
yakking at her. <laughs> like giving her a little what? confrontation. I, yeah. Candace? Confrontation. <laughs> I was learning how to do it. I may not have done it very well there. But. Oh. <laughs> Maybe not effectively. But the, well, one of yeah. the things that 84, we talked about 84 and 88, mm-hmm. um, is that it gave you exposure. Yes. And, and it seems to me that so many of these things that you are talking about as far as beginning to chip away at stereotypes and um, and stigma mm-hmm. is exposure and exposure to exactly what you're talking about, which is, you know, we're capable humans. We're just stuck in various degrees of our bodies don't work like yours and, and right, normal able-bodied people, yeah, right? Yeah, different. Yeah, you know, and, non-disabled people. I mean, here's so this is one of the things I teach about understanding disability. Okay. It's something I started to develop as my athletic career was going on was I understand it that we needed education around disability because people think disability is a bad thing and they think it's, you're not capable, you need to be fixed, all these wrong assumptions mm-hmm. about disability because we were never around and we were always thought of as a bad thing. I mean, if we think about as athletes, when we get injured, we always thought it was kind of a bad thing. Uh, but we quite often learned quite a bit about ourselves during that time, that downtime with injury. So I thought, well, I need to develop some kind of education program that teaches people about disability, teaches about all the different disabilities, the proper language to use. You know, one of the things that in language that in the early days we used to say disabled and able-bodied. Yeah. That term able-bodied is a really ableist term because it, it, designates that there is a body that is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, right. And the truth is, is that we shouldn't put more value on one body or another. That's ableism when we put value on bodies. There is no perfect body. And so we evolved from saying able-bodied to non-disabled and disabled because that made sense. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And the other thing with that is, Everybody's going to have a disability in their life. Right. I'm just telling you, folks, if nothing else, you live long enough, aging's going to get you. Yeah, right. So you're going to join the club. And the deal really is that let's make a world that works for everybody. Yeah. Now, so that when we do get there and there is a function that we're used to having and is not there anymore, it doesn't matter because adaptations have already been made. Things are already set up. You already got the right ramp or whatever you need right. to get up the flight of stairs that you had or the stair climber. So so anyways, I started to, because sorry, I kind of tangent off. No, that's but, okay. But the education pieces I felt were so critical because there were so m- many misconceptions around disability. So I developed some programming called Disability is Possibility and understanding disability education so that I could help people really become comfortable around individuals with disabilities Mm -hmm. because that's the other thing we hear a lot about. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm so uncomfortable. And we are in the world right now where we're having a lot of uncomfortable conversations because we've we've had systems in place that have put more value on some bodies than other bodies 
And we're discovering now that we have to dismantle those systems. And dismantling those systems means we have to build a new system. And we can't build a new system without understanding how to build it. And that's where education comes in. And so for me, I, I thought, well, this is, this is my path. I did it with sports. Mm-hmm. I was educating with sports. Look, look right. what we can do. Right. Like you thought that it was impossible. And honestly, when we listened to the tapes of the 84 event, you know, the exhibition during the Olympic Games, the conversation is really about those athletes being re- athletes. They're athletes. And we're seeing it right now with the Paralympic Games. Yeah on everywhere the play the exposure when you said exposure Exposure. it's all about the exposure right right i I also wanted to one of the reasons that i wanted to speak with you is is you are have always been very upfront with me Mm -hmm. um you know about when i use a term that might be not quite appropriate or you know i ask you questions and i just think it's really important that your thoughts and your stories are exposed to as many people as possible to the listeners, because I'm hoping that it will be, your stories will be an opportunity for learning as well as inspiration and insight. And hopefully it's all those things. And that's, that's to me, that's the magic of, of the Olympic games and, and the Paralympic games. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Because it really, as we said before, it's about exposure exposure and education coming together really create this magic right mm-hmm. i mean i the other uh the other day so i don't i don't have cable tv okay and so i was really struggling to try to figure out how to watch the paralympic games and i discovered that a restaurant that is at la live i just for the listeners i live downtown los angeles okay. i'm a few blocks away from la live for anybody who knows the LA Which area. is where Staples Center is yeah. and the Kodak Theater, Yeah, or the... Where they have the Academy, the, yep. Academy Awards and... Well, yeah, they yeah. have the Emmys there and... The Emmys, yeah. yeah. And you have some Emmys here. That's so lovely. <laughs> it was held at the Shrine back then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Shrine. What a great place. Yes. Well, so I was looking around like, hey, you know, I have some friends I can watch with and stuff. But I found out that the Yard House... The sports bar mm-hmm. was showing the Paralympics on the TVs there. And this is the first time I've ever heard a sports bar showing the Paralympics in the United States. I don't know. Maybe it has been someplace else. And this was last night. And this was last night. Oh, my gosh. So I went down there and, uh, yeah, I checked it out and I was so happy. They set me up so I could see a screen from my left and a screen <sighs> from my right. And <laughs> I, I, I love that. I love that. Well, you know, it just shows as an example that what you, you know, you were part of really, really early on that the transformation for the public and for yourselves is, is continuing, constantly continuing. Yes. And yeah. It's, you know, it's the never ending story. I think um, in humanity, we're always evolving and we, are evolving to include everyone. We're now working to leave no one behind. You know, we have the Convention on Rights for Persons with Disabilities out of the United Nations, which is the first human rights document that has ever included people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And it was being signed and ratified in 2008. And then when the Sustainable Development Goals 
for 2015 to 2030 were being developed, they realized that people with disabilities had been left out of the Millennium Development Goals from the, you know, from before the Sustainable Development Goals. So people well, with disabilities, well, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll explain a little okay, more. Okay, yeah, yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to, I want to understand this because more, this but. is a this is a global movement. So the Millennium Development Goals were developed in the year 2000, and those goals were goals for the global community okay. to try to reach to elevate people and systems and policies okay. and governments to be internationally include, internationally yeah. to include everyone and people with disabilities were not included in those goals at all and that was something that was discovered by the delegation from Mexico and they said hey you know what people with disabilities don't even have any representation in human rights documents. And this is the year 2000, right? And that's when the Convention on the Rights for Persons with Disabilities, the United Nations started to build this document, this human rights document, that to this day is the most comprehensive human rights document ever written because it includes people with disabilities. It's about people with disabilities, which really is about all of us, right? Mm. Because we're all going there, like I said before. And this was 2008 that this was ultimately signed. This was ultimately signed and ratified by... Okay. It's been ratified by every country in the world except for four or five. And the United States is one country that hasn't ratified it yet. And uh, yeah, I know. I love the little puppy tilt head I just saw. You all didn't get to see that. But he definitely made the move that I really appreciate because it's like, are you joking me? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's, uh, our government. Uh, We have another podcast for that. Yeah, there's only so much I can get into. Right. So so let me just take it back to that sustainable development goals. So when they, at the end of the Millennium Development Goals, they, like, we need to continue these goals. We need to rewrite what are going to create sustainable goals for the world Mm -hmm. to include everyone in every aspect of the world. And in the 17 goals, people with disabilities are mentioned 11 times. And that's massive. That's huge. And that means that we are shifting into a world of co-creation, collaboration, mm-hmm. and community. And like I said in the very beginning, community is my jam. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I love community. And uh, yeah, and developing it wherever I can. And it's something that I'm doing here in LA now in a, a couple of different areas and and really excited, you know, for the games to be coming forward because we have a lot of opportunity to begin to look at what isn't working here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one is homelessness. I mm. mean, homelessness, mm-hmm. I mean, we have 66,000 people We've living on the street. We've got a lot of problems here in LA. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying that sport's going to care at all. But honestly, sports creates a level of humanity that connects us all that we should not forget. And mm-hmm. we should definitely take it into consideration each and every turn of how do we learn how to play together cooperatively, right? Right. Yeah, because that's really what this is about in this world. And how are we of service to other? I mean, 
the service that you bring forward in multiple ways, John, is so important, you know, from what you do with this podcast to the other work that you do and with Angel City Sports. Right. We haven't you know? really talked about that yet. Yeah. yeah. And being a coach for swimming, when you have that opportunity, when it comes forward, mm-hmm. is makes a huge difference because there's, you know, there's this peer thing, right? That non-disabled, disabled athletes, I mean, I love it when I'm seeing Olympians and Paralympians working together and creating opportunities for new individuals, whether they have a disability or not, to say, hey, look, these groups work together. Yeah. We, we, have, we have different agendas sometimes, but we work together really well. And, um, and we also do that um, with um, Ready, Set, Gold. Right, is right. A, is well, another it, program. It, it's that's true. That's true. Yeah. It, I've I've so many I've so many thoughts. <laughs> like the the one thing is is that you and I just you were you were part of organizing a a, a community outreach program with Southern California Olympians and Paralympians mm-hmm. Association, which is which is the alumni network for the Olympians and Paralympians here in Southern California. And we did a beach party. Yes. And you know part part of that was it's like well. What about the bathrooms? And and we, we were, you know, we were going to learn how to do outrigger canoes. So what about the, you know, uh, a, a disabled athlete? What's their access? And you know, so we had to go through all these things. But it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. take that much. You just address it and you deal with it. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And, and and you get this level of awareness when we expand and think about okay, who's missing, right? Yeah, like right. who. Who's missing? Who's not participating? And we start to look at the most marginalized groups, right? They're Mm -hmm. usually the people that aren't participating. Mm -hmm. And then we figure out how we include them. So our most marginalized group of our alumni is probably the Paralympians. Probably. And Mm -hmm. so how do we include them? And that's what we did, you know, when we started planning that beach party. And then... I didn't even get to participate because I, silly little girl, didn't realize that I was coaching on the track that same day for Angel with the City Angel Sports. City, which Angel City Sports. So let's talk about. I know. Let's talk about real <laughs> briefly. Let's talk about Angel City Sports and the Angel yes. City Games. And yeah, yeah. Something else that you and I have mm-hmm. have experienced together since twenty sixteen. I think was yeah. my first time being. Involved. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, but tell do, do, tell. Tell us about the services that they provide, because it's something that is, it's it's a really wonderful thing here in Los Angeles. Absolutely. So Angel City Sports is a nonprofit that creates opportunities for sport for youth and adults with disabilities. And it's any type of disability. They mostly focus on physical disability, mm-hmm. and uh, but they've had some kids and athletes that have intellectual disabilities that have come forward to participate in uh, some of the activities. But they're pretty much all of the sports that you would think about that happen for the Paralympic Games. Right. And they make those available in clinics where you learn how. Right. um, In competitive opportunities. And also in a mass grouping of say five or six different sports happening at one time in one place like angel city games yes well the games have competition Mm. and they they have a little bit of clinicking 
but they have these days where you can come and try out all these different sports. Okay. So there's no competition really going on at that time, but there's an opportunity to, it's a little bit of a festival, so to speak, because, Mm -hmm. because you, as an individual, I could rotate throughout all of the different sports and try them all out and see which ones I like the best. And then I can go to a clinic and learn more and about it. And that is an opportunity when Barbara... Uh, yeah, Barbara Chambers. Barbara yeah. Chambers. Uh-huh. Sorry, I'll get her last name. When Barbara <laughs> Chambers said, hey, Candace, you know what? You can be good. I mean, that's that opportunity to, right. to change you know, the trajectory of somebody's life, which is yeah. th- one of the first and core magic goal moments that happen in any athlete. Right. Well, and we have to, as individuals, we have to be looking like, where can we support? Where can we create change? Where can we elevate? How can we do that? You know, be very conscious about that type of activity. I think in everything we do and contributing to society in a way that builds a place where no one's left behind. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Candace, you have, <laughs> as usual, taught me a lot, and I hope that our listeners as well have gained a ton of insight and inspiration into your life and your journey and what you are still trying to accomplish. Oh, thank you, John. And I, it's back at you. I learned so much from you too. And yeah, I mean. Because when we have these conversations, there's stuff I learn about you and your practices and the things you're doing in your life that motivate me and energize me. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if we're just going to circle back on sports here, I mean, that's the beauty of sport and the people we meet in it. Yes. Is that there's something, you know, when you said about the Paralympic spark, there's some kind of the Paralympic spark. There's something about people who have decided that, you know, they are going to practice sport and they go into this competitive space, there's this residual something. It's like a residual magic of having been there to the mountaintop kind of thing, I guess, um, and come back. Uh, And and I think with Paralympians, there's there's also that unique spark is um, about a level of lack of opportunity and oppression Mm. that people are dealing with in a variety of areas of their lives. Mm. And when they come to sport, it doesn't exist. It starts to fade away. Yeah. It fades away. And suddenly we're one, right? We're coming together as one. And yeah. So I appreciate so much that you bring forward. Thank you. Well, thank you. And that's, that's why I do sports life balance. So thanks again, Candace. You're welcome. And thank you. Instead of an inspiring quote, Candace has asked me to share with you the definition of ableism. Ableism is a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based upon societally constructed ideas of normality, intelligence, excellence, desirability, and productivity. Candace would also like you to check out the wethe15.org. It's a 10-year campaign that has just launched during the Tokyo Games. That's W-E-T-H-E number 15 dot O-R-G. It's the world's biggest ever human rights movement to end discrimination of the 15% of the human population that have disabilities. I'm John Moffat, and big thanks to all of you for joining us today. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend. And don't forget to give us your five-star review. 
Have an amazing week, everyone. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed Sports Life Balance.